Chapter 10 of My Southern Home or the South and Its People. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. My Southern Home or the South and Its People by William Wells Brown. Chapter 10. A young and beautiful lady, closely veiled and attired in black, arrived one morning at Poplar Farm, and was shown immediately into a room in the eastern wing, where she remained, attended only by old Nancy. That the lady belonged to the better class was evident from her dress, refined manners, and the inviolable secrecy of her stay at the residence of Dr. Gaines. At last the lady gave birth to a child which was placed under the care of Isabella, a quadroon servant, who had recently lost a baby of her own. The lady left the premises as mysteriously as she had come, and nothing more was ever seen or heard of her, certainly not by the Negroes. The child, which was evidently of pure Anglo-Saxon blood, was called Lola, and grew up amongst the Negro children of the place, to be a bright, pretty girl, to whom her adopted mother seemed very much attached. At the time of which I write, Lola was eight years old, and her presence on the plantation began to annoy the white members of Dr. Gaines' family, especially when strangers visited the place. The appearance of Mr. Walker, the noted slave speculator on the plantation, and whom it was said had been sent for, created no little excitement amongst the slaves and great was the surprise to the blacks when they saw the traitor taking Isabella and Lola with him at his departure. Unable to sell the little white girl at any price, Mr. Walker gave her to Mr. George Savage, who, having no children of his own, adopted the child. Isabella was sold to a gentleman who took her to Washington. The grief of the quadroon at being separated from her adopted child was intense and greatly annoyed her new master, who determined to sell her on his arrival home. Isabella was sold to the slave-trader Jennings, who placed the woman in one of the private slave-pens, or prisons, a number of which then disgraced the national capital. Jennings intended to send Isabella to the New Orleans market, as soon as he purchased a sufficient number. At the dusk of the evening, Previous to the day she was to be sent off, as the old prison was being closed for the night, Isabella suddenly darted past the keeper and ran for her life. It was not a great distance from the prison to the long bridge which passes from the lower part of the city across the Potomac to the extensive forests and woodlands of the celebrated Arlington Heights, then occupied by that distinguished relative and descendant of the immortal Washington, Mr. George W. Custis. Thither the poor fugitive directed her flight. So unexpected was her escape, that she had gained several rods the start before the keeper had secured the other prisoners, and rallied his assistants to aid in the pursuit. It was at an hour, and in a part of the city where horses could not easily be obtained for the chase. No bloodhounds were at hand to run down the flying woman, and for once it seemed as if there was to be a fair trial of speed and endurance between the slave and the slave-catchers. The keeper and his force raised the hue and cry on her path, 
as they followed close behind. But so rapid was the flight along the wide avenue that the astonished citizens, as they poured forth from their dwellings to learn the cause of alarm, were only able to comprehend the nature of the case in time to fall in with the motley throng in pursuit, or raise an anxious prayer to heaven, as they refused to join in the chase, as many a one did that night, that the panting fugitive might escape, and the merciless soul-dealer for once be disappointed of his prey. And now, with the speed of an arrow, having passed the avenue, with the distance between her and her pursuers constantly increasing, this poor hunted female gained the long bridge, as it is called, where interruption seemed improbable. Already her heart began to beat high with the hope of success. She had only to pass three-quarters of a mile across the bridge when she could bury herself in a vast forest, just at the time when the curtain of night would close around her and protect her from the pursuit of her enemies. But God, by his providence, had otherwise determined. He had ordained that an appalling tragedy should be enacted that night within plain sight of the President's house and the capital of the Union, which would be an evidence, wherever it should be known, of the unconquerable love of liberty which the human heart may inherit, as well as a fresh admonition to the slave-dealer of the cruelty and enormity of his crimes. Just as the pursuers passed the high draw, soon after entering upon the bridge, they beheld three men slowly approaching from the Virginia side. They immediately called to them to arrest the fugitive, proclaiming her a runaway slave. True to their Virginia instincts, as she came near, they formed a line across the narrow bridge to intercept her. Seeing that escape was impossible in that quarter, she stopped suddenly and turned upon her pursuers. On came the profane and ribald gang, faster than ever, already exulting in her capture and threatening punishment for her flight. For a moment she looked wildly and anxiously around to see if there was no hope of escape. On either hand, far down below, rolled the deep, foaming waters of the Potomac, and before and behind were the rapidly approaching steps and noisy voices of her pursuers. Seeing how vain would be any further effort to escape, her resolution was instantly taken. She clasped her hands convulsively together, raised her tearful and imploring eyes towards heaven, and begged for the mercy and compassion there, which was unjustly denied her on earth. Then, with a single bound, vaulted over the railing of the bridge, and sank forever beneath the angry and foaming waters of the river. In the meantime, Mr. and Mrs. Savage were becoming more and more interested in the child, Lola, whom they had adopted, and who was fast developing into an intellectual and beautiful girl whose bright, sparkling hazel eyes, snow-white teeth, and alabaster complexion caused her to be admired by all. In time, Lola became highly educated and was duly introduced into the best society. The cholera of 1832, in its ravages, swept off many of St. Louis's most valued citizens, and among them Mr. George Savage. Mrs. Savage, who was then in ill health, regarded Lola with even greater solicitude than during the lifetime of her late husband. Lola had been amply provided for by Mr. Savage in his will. She was being courted by Mr. Martin Phelps, previous to the death of her adopted father, 
and the failing health of Mrs. Savage hastened the nuptials. The marriage of Mr. Phelps and Miss Savage partook more of a private than of a public affair, owing to the recent death of Mr. Savage. Mr. Phelps's residence was at the outskirts of the city, in the vicinity of what was known as the Mound, and was a lovely spot. The lady had brought considerable property to her husband. One morning, in the month of December, and only about three months after the marriage of the Phelpses, two men alighted from a carriage at Mr. Phelps's door, rang the bell, and were admitted by the servant. Mr. Phelps hastened from the breakfast-table as the servant informed him of the presence of the strangers. On entering the sitting-room, the host recognized one of the men as Officer Mull, while the other announced himself as James Walker, and said, "'I have come, Mr. Phelps, on rather an unpleasant errand. You've got a slave in your house that belongs to me.' "'I think you are mistaken, sir,' replied Mr. Phelps. "'My servants are all hired from Major Ben O'Fallon.' Walker put on a sinister smile, and blandly continued, "'I see, sir, that you don't understand me. Ten years ago I bought a slave-child from Dr. Gaines, and lent her to Mr. George Savage, and I understand she's in your employ, and I've come to get her.' And here the slave-speculator took from his side-pocket a large sheepskin pocket-book, and drew forth the identical bill of sale of Lola, given to him by Dr. Gaines at the time of the selling of Isabella and the child. "'Good heavens!' exclaimed Mr. Phelps. "'That paper, if it means anything, it means my wife.' "'I can't help what it means,' remarked Walker. "'Here's the bill of sale, and here's the officer to get me my nigger.' "'There must be a mistake here. "'It is true that my wife was the adopted daughter of the late Mr. George Savage, "'but there is not a drop of negro blood in her veins, "'and I doubt, sir, if you have ever seen her.' "'Well, sir,' said Walker, "'just bring her in the room, and I guess she'll know me.' Feeling confident that the bill of sale had no reference to his wife, Mr. Phelps rang the bell, and told the boy that answered it to ask his mistress to come in. A moment or two later, and the lady entered the room. "'My dear,' said Mr. Phelps, "'are you acquainted with either of these gentlemen?' The lady looked, hesitated, and replied, I think not. Then Walker arose, stepped towards the window, where he could be seen to better advantage, and said, Why, Lola, have you forgotten me? It's only about ten years since I brought you from Poplar Farm and lent you to Mr. Savage. Ha, ha, ha. This coarse laugh of the rough, uneducated negro trader had not ceased when Lola gave a heart-rending shriek, and fell fainting upon the floor. "'I thought she'd know me when I jogged her memory,' said Walker, as he reseated himself. Mr. Phelps sprang to his wife and lifted her from the floor, and placed her upon the sofa. "'Throw a little of Adam's ale in her face. That'll bring her to. I've seen him faint afore, but they allus come too,' said the trader. "'I thank you, sir, but I will attend to my own affairs,' said Mr. Phelps, in a rather petulant tone. "'Yes,' replied Walker, "'but she's mine, and I want to see that she comes, too.' 
as soon as she revived mr phelps led his wife from the room a conference of an hour took place on the return of mr phelps to the parlor which closed with the understanding that a legal examination of the papers should settle the whole question the next day at the appointed time on the following morning one of the ablest lawyers in the city colonel strother pronounced the bill of sale genuine for it had been drawn up by justice mcguire and witnessed by george Kennelly and wilson p hunt for this claim walker expressed a willingness to sell the woman for two thousand dollars the payment of the money would have been a small matter if it had not carried with it the proof that lola was a slave which was undeniable evidence that she had negro blood in her veins yet such was the result for dr gaines had been dead these three years and whoever lola's mother was even if living she would not come forth to vindicate the free birth of her child mr phelps was a man of fine sensibility and was affectionately attached to his wife however it was a grave question to be settled in his mind whether his honor as a southern gentleman and his standing in society would allow him to acknowledge a woman as his wife in whose veins coursed the accursed blood of the negro slave long was the struggle between love and duty but the shame of public gaze and the ostracism of society decided the matter in favor of duty and the young and lovely wife was informed by the husband that they must separate never to meet again indescribable were the feelings of lola as she begged him upon her knees not to leave her the room was horrible in its darkness her mind lost its reasoning powers for a time at last consciousness returned but only to awaken in her the loneliness of her condition and the unfriendliness of that law and society that dooms one to everlasting disgrace for a blood taint which the victim did not have ten days after the proving of the bill of sale the innocent lola died of a broken heart and was interred in the negro burial ground with not a white face to follow the corpse to its last resting place such is american race prejudice end of chapter ten recording by james k white chula vista